WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA, the podcast where two best friends talk about comics with the people who make them. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Lazowitz. And this week's guest is the writer of the new Blade series at Marvel, Brian Edward Hill. Welcome, Brian. Hello. <laughs> How is everybody? Oh, great. Doing fine. Uh, we actually just took like three weeks off, but the listeners have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, they, well you just gave it away you just told them fair <laughs> so where are you guys broadcasting from opposite ends of this the southern end of new jersey oh right on well i am yeah. broadcasting from beautiful downtown los angeles the weather is lovely the butterflies are flying i'm just in a great mood right on glad to gratitude and attitude you know yeah, absolutely <laughs> Well, you know, on that same note, uh, talking about Los Angeles, you know, we are we're, we're a couple months into the writer's strike at this point. How how has that been for you? Um, I mean, hmm. yeah, look, it's challenging because it's a strike and I can't do any of the screenwriting work that I would do and TV work and all of that. Um, I'm really grateful to be in a position where I work a lot. So I have a nest egg and I'm not worried about making ends meet and all those other things. Um, but you know, it's, it's definitely been a vice grip on the industry for sure. Um, I hope that it comes to a, you know, beneficial resolution. Um, I hope that it comes to that sooner than later, but We'll just have to see how it all plays out. Were were you in the middle of any projects when this all started? Um. Well, yeah, because I'm always in the middle of projects. Uh, so there's never really a period where I'm not doing anything. Uh, but you, you know, I work with really cool people. Uh, so a lot of the issues that are real issues, uh, that the WGA is, uh, approaching. I don't personally experience them a lot um, because I, I work, I've been lucky to work with like really cool people. So, you know, we all knew this was coming, uh, prepared for it. And, you know, we're just kind of making the best of it. Uh, on the bright side, it gives me time to work on some personal projects. gives me time to do comics. I mean, frankly, I don't know if I would be able to do Blade um, with the workload that I had going into the strike. Uh, the strike allows me to do comic book work and kind of preset stuff, you know, move forward, that kind of deal. Yeah, were were you were you in the the industry at that during the last strike the you know the one back in the I was not okay no I was in a Starbucks in Missouri, ah. uh, working on screenplays that nobody would read. Okay then, <laughs> um, so something interesting just in kind of doing my own little reading on this. Apparently, you know, because we, we it's it's looked like at varying points that that sag was going to to join the picket line the last time that happened the strike was called by of all people matt do you know who was president of sag when it happened in the 60s in the 60s yes reagan yes of all people crazy yeah well i think it's time that we have to do a strike (laughs) <laughs> strike time for bonzo that's right <laughs> dear hollywood tear down this wall <laughs> no uh, one no one in my demographic has any idea of what i'm talking about they literally don't understand 
Fortunately, we're old fogies and we do. I was just going to make a Rich Little reference. So, you know, if we really want to date ourselves. Oh, there you go. There you go. I've often, I've often been confused with Rich Little. Ah, <laughs> uh, the resemblance. But I do impressions okay. of like random people that like no one really knows except industry people. Like my best impressions are just like Axel Alonso and no one knows what <laughs> Axel Alonso sounds like. But unless you like work in comics. And so it's, you know, a useless skill. Well, okay. Now I have to ask, what does Axel Alonso sound like? <laughs> well, you know, Brian, I really want to work with you on this this script. And I think it's really good. Um, and I'm just looking for a writer to come in and, you know, flesh out the character. That's what Axel Ooh. sounds like. All right. Okay. <laughs> It's a lovely, Apo- lovely apologies guy. Apologies if you just lost your next AWA series, but <laughs> no, he's a lovely guy. He's a very good friend of mine, um, and uh, he will not mind. <laughs> so, what do you kind of, you know, now that you're kind of in this period, you know, what what are you doing to kind of take your mind off this stuff? You know, I was thinking as a St. Louis guy, I, you know, I'd say at least you still have the Cardinals, but uh, maybe not this season. I don't really follow baseball. I'll okay. be honest, like just not a thing for me. I, you know, what I do like during the summertime, the downtime. Well, you know, when you're an artist, you really don't ever have downtime, right? You just kind of express in different ways. You know, so I'm working on a screenplay just for me that I want to direct, um, and taking the time to work on that because I can do that. I can write for myself, right? So that's happening. I'm working on comics. Um, I've got a couple things uh, brewing besides the stuff I can talk about. That's good. Um, you know, and just kind of re-exploring the city too. Um, and uh, taking the time to not be on the hamster wheel so much in LA and and enjoying that and doing some personal evolution stuff, which has been really important. Because uh, sometimes, you know, when you're just like working, 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 you don't take a step back to kind of assess where are you? Just on a personal sense and what are your real goals and what motivates you as an artist what motivates you as a person and so i've been able to explore uh those sides of uh you know kind of my existence i suppose and that's been good but yeah you're never really off you know you're you're taking time to read you're you're finally getting into those novels that have been sitting there for a long time you haven't gotten to you're catching up on that netflix queue or whatever it is so you know it's a bunch of that stuff the old uh, Burgess Meredith, there was time now line. Yeah, well, and then also like I'm, you know, I play video games, so like Diablo exists, mm-hmm. you know. So whenever you're like, hmm, I don't know what I'm going to do with my time, uh, Diablo, Diablo is what you're going to do. <laughs> you're going to make the numbers go up. You're going to kill the demons and make the numbers go up. It, I, I, I used to be such a huge video game person, but like playing current games i find that i just so my my son got uh tears of the kingdom uh, a couple weeks or like the week after his birthday came out or whatever and i i I dabble i poke in every now and again you know because i was you know of the generation where the first legend of zelda came out i it's 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 too complicated (laughs) i just don't don't yeah like you know Someone dear to me plays uh, a lot of Zelda, but, you know, they're kind of a genius uh, about it. So they can just 
you know, kind of, kind of, kind of handle it all. Like I, you know, I, I just kind of sip games a little bit. Mm. Um, you know, it, sometimes it just helps just to kind of go into an open world. I do a lot of open world games so I can mm-hmm. just be in a different place. You know, and I'm one of those weird guys that like walks around GTA Five and doesn't like play it, but just like walks around Los Santos thinking, you know, mm-hmm. with a controller in my hand or play like Forza Horizon and don't race anybody, but just kind of cruise around, you know, um, that's sort of how I use it. it. It's a it's it's like Dune. It's traveling without moving. You're you're a pick the wildflowers and Red Dead Redemption kind of guy. I, I oh that. man, I'm mosey. <laughs> I would put that game on to just mosey around and oh sure, you know I would I would definitely definitely do that. Um, that wakes up that I mean I'm from St. Louis, right? So Red Dead woke up that Missouri in me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> For a while, it had me talking a little bit different, you know. I don't want to make myself all the way go down to the stall. And pick up a couple things, some provisions. I, I can I can hear the 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 harmonica in the background while this is oh, all yeah. happening. <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> love it. But uh, you are here to talk about your new Blade series at Marvel I with uh, artist Elena Casagrande, uh, launching yes. Jul- July nineteenth. Yes. Uh, Matt, vamp for the crowd. True evil is patient, and a dark, ancient power has been simmering quietly for centuries. And when Blade himself is the one to unknowingly unleash it, Marvel's entire supernatural underworld will come out of hiding to demand he handle it, or pay a pound of flesh for his mistakes. That's good. Did you write that? That's amazing. (laughs) Uh, that's just the diamond solicit text and Matt's golden pipes. Okay, I, I that's better than anything I did. <laughs> but you should get it anyway. I want to <laughs> read that book. No, I'm just playing. That's about that's about what happened. That's about what happened. Uh, but uh, yeah, how did this uh, gig come about for you? Well, it's really uh, Will Moss, um, you know, an editor over at Marvel. I'd worked with him previously on a couple things, and just really liked him as a person. Uh, and he reached out to me and asked me if I'd be interested in writing Blade. And, you know, I'm always hesitant to do an ongoing because my schedule and everything else, it gets really demanding. You know, I remember when I was working on Outsiders for DC, you know, that was just demanding for me. I mean, I really can't take on too many books at the same time. Mm-hmm. But I think it was the idea of being able to do a number one, which is interesting to me. Being able to you know, approach a character that I've never really touched before. And then also the nature of the storytelling is something I haven't really done in comics uh, yet. I haven't really done horror. Well, I did Angel for a while and liked it. Uh, And that was fun to do. But Blade is more brutal. Um, You know, it's the, the volumes turned up on it. And I was in the mood to do a pulpy, but hopefully idea laden kind of hard action horror book, you know? Uh, and so it, it's kind of aligned with where I was thinking creatively and and uh, where Marvel wanted to take the character. Uh, and I, you know, I jumped on board because of that. And I turn a lot of things down. I do. Um, not because I'm so cool or anything, but sometimes someone will offer me something. I'm just like, I know I'm not the best person to do that. 
you know, I just, I know there's better people than me that can handle that, that have more of an affinity for those things. You know, if you notice, you don't really see me doing a lot of cosmic stuff because that's not really something that I, uh, I think naturally gravitate to, you know, for instance. So, you know, sometimes it's like, yeah, I don't think I'm the right fit for that. Um, and I don't want to cheat readers out of a better experience. Um, but this, it just happened to be in the zone uh, of this when Will gave me the email and I was like, well, I, you know, I told him I, I kind of want to do this, you know, uh, I want to do something that is both respectful of current canon, but also something that allows new readers to onboard, right? Because one of one of my frustrations is I'll go to a movie and see the characters, and I haven't been following them in the books, and then I kind of seek them out in the books, and you know, Batman isn't Batman, or you know, uh, you know, Superman's a giant piece of chocolate cake for six months or something. Like, you know, it's it's and so there's like a disconnect, right? And so what I what I wanted to do was create a book where, yeah, yeah, if you've been following Jason's great work, you know, cool, you know, like the yes, you know, we we've got you. But also, if you're just ambiently familiar with Blade, maybe you saw the Wesley Snipes movie, you know, the first one. Yeah, I haven't even seen the other two, you know. Or you just think the character is cool, or you just played, you know, Midnight Marauders or whatever that new game is. It's out, you know, um, and you just think it would be cool to watch a, you know, the, to read a Blade thing. I wanted to make sure that it was a story where, like, what I believe are the essential experiential qualities of Blade are present. You know, a guy that talks shit and drives a cool car and kills vampires and, you know, um, kind of like a bull in a china shop. Uh, in a lot of ways and and so yeah uh, and, and marvel was really into that approach uh so they kind of let me off the chain to do some stuff and i really like you know the first issue i think is really cool um it's stylish you know, lane has done such a good job with the art i don't know if you guys have been able to take a look at it or not but um some of the preview pages are out i know marvel's been sending out some comps to people um but it's such a good job um uh just making it just like a fun you know, stylish thing that to me feels like a blade experience. Was there something, or maybe what was the first thing that happened in working with Elena where you realized, Oh yeah, we're going to get, we're going to get along fine. It was the sketches, you know, it was the, the concept sketches of the character. Um, and then some of the layouts when they came in, uh, I, you know, I like to write things that are visual experiences. And that's what a comic book is really. Right. So um, when an artist has an, innate sense of design i really respond to that and there's just a slickness to uh her work you know kind of the same the same thing i felt when i was working with priscilla portraits on uh chariot you know that original book i did right it's just like i i like i like that art that just looks like you could take any panel and put it on a t-shirt and wear it you know to a bar and look cool you know uh and elena certainly got that quality in spades and she's also got a real approach to the action and the violence and the storytelling there. Um, Cause this is a big action book. You know, this is uh, when you're doing a comic, you can do things you probably wouldn't be able to do in a film, you know, because a film would be, uh, it wouldn't be like budget conscious in, in that same way. But in a comic book, I can do this kind of globe trotting, almost Bondian sort of, action thing with blade while still doing peak horror with influences from clive barker and all of that and elena is able to kind of capture all that stuff you know like she gets the vibe you know she gets the sexiness she gets the horror she gets the kineticism and she gets like the iconic imagery that i think the book needs 
Now, uh, how long has it been for you since you've been able to work on a comic like this or, you know, a monthly book? Oh, wow. Um, hmm. A while. I mean, I'd probably say the last monthly I did might have been Angel. Come to think of it, you know, uh, thank you. Because I did quite a bit of that. Um, you know, I think I did at least 12 to 15 or something of that, you know. Uh, I was there for a minute on that one. Um, but yeah, that was probably the last time, uh, for sure. Um, because again, you know, it's like when when you're, I'm working on Titans too, and yeah. all the other stuff I was doing. It's just hard. And I, and I don't, I don't want to shortchange readers from an experience. You know, because these books aren't, you know, when I was growing up, back in my day, <laughs> uh, a comic book was an impulse buy, <laughs> right? Like you would go to like 7-Eleven, there'd be like two metal racks, you'd get a Slurpee, a Snickers bar, uh, you can tell how, how into nutrition I was growing up, you get a Slurpee and a Snickers bar, <laughs> um, and you buy two comic books, you know, and if you had, you'd still have like a couple bucks left you know, for some bazooka gum or whatever the nonsense was, right? Mm -hmm. Now, you have to budget for these things. They're like, what, like five bucks a pop or something like that? Um, you know, and and that's not an insignificant amount of money when it adds up, right? And you, and you, and you got to expect, reader goes into a comic book store. Most likely, if they're, let's say they have 20 bucks to spend. Well, five of those bucks are Batman dollars probably <laughs> i don't know which batman they're going to do which series whatever it is but five of them batman batman bucks and then maybe it's superman or maybe it's x-men or you know so like you know a character like blade uh blade is you know kind of coming out of the discretionary of every comic book reader right so i really wanted to make sure that it i thought it was worth the price of admission you know and, and if i don't think i can deliver that effectively or i'm not i'm not passionate about it then i'm not gonna gonna do it so that's why you see me kind of intermittently doing books um too you know that way at least they know i mean everyone might not like what i do but i don't think people can accuse my work of never being thoughtful right like you may not like it um because i've had some things that really worked for people and some things that hadn't worked so much but i don't think anyone ever thought i was just lazy about it that I just kind of phoned it in, you know, even on something like fallen angels, which people didn't respond to uh, as much as some of my other work. I mean, it has some fans. I'm not, and I'm not disparaging anyone's experience. If you love it, thank you very much for reading it. And if you hate it, thank you very much for reading it. But I don't think uh, even the people that, that didn't really vibe with what I did, it wasn't because I didn't work. It's just because I created an experience they didn't want to have, you know, um, and so, yeah, uh, that's why I'm, I'm very judicious about what I do, because uh, I, I remember having to pinch pennies to buy stuff when I was, you know, uh, collecting books and the rest of it. And, and I just think, you know, you, you can't ever take it for granted that someone's going to spend their money, which is really them spending their time um, that they don't get back to read something that you wrote. Wanted to be all right. So uh, as far as, as, you know, Blade goes, well, I guess, first of all, let's flash back here a little bit. You know, what, what was young BEH doing when the first Wesley Snipes Blade movie came out? 
Oh, goodness. So Blade, well, the first Blade, I was probably in NYU at the time. Yeah, because I remember watching the trailer on Doug Mirabello's computer when uh uh I, yeah when it when it came out yeah and then i saw it i think we all saw it together we all went like we and me and my friend ben miller uh uh you know um we all just kind of went out and saw it at the Lowe's cinema on third street i think uh and we all just like really loved it I thought it was super cool. I didn't know anything about the character. I mean, I'd heard of the character a bit, but, you know, I just kind of knew sort of like a 70s era vampire hunter guy at Afro, and that was cool. Um, but the movie, I thought, was just like super kinetic and relentless. Uh, and Norrington, I don't think gets enough credit. Stephen Norrington, the director of the film. I don't think Stephen Norrington gets enough credit for what he did aesthetically to genre films because without... Blade, I don't think you get the Matrix. You know, I, I don't think you get that kind of uh, dagger-like kinetic uh, action storytelling, you know, with the, the trench coats and the look and the rest of it. So I just thought it was awesome. Uh, and it's just such a watchable movie, that first one. You know, it's one of those movies where you're just like flipping through channels and Blade is on and I'll just watch this one part and then you always make it to the end. And that to me is like the mark of a really good genre movie is if you can, you put it on and I'm from Missouri, so we say cut it on. So you cut it on and, you know, you just kind of watch it all the way through, right? And so, yeah, that's kind of what I was doing there. Um uh, and then, you know, a big fan of the uh, uh, second film, Guillermo del Toro. Um, I think that Luke Goss's performance as Jared Nomack in that movie is one of the more underrated villain performances in comic book movies. I think it's kind of great, you know? And I think were that movie to come out today, we would be talking about how great Luke Goss's performance was. Because it's just like reckless abandon, dedication to playing this character, you know? Um, and I thought that was super cool. Um, and then there's a third movie, uh, um, <laughs> uh, but, but, uh, yeah, you know, I, I wonder if Norrington's direction on the original blade is less pops out because he's followed by del Toro, who's such an auteur. And there's so much that people want, you know, they talk about blade two because, Right, all the del Toro ness of it, and it forgets that the first one set such a standard for that to work off of. Well, I do think that's true, right? Well, you know, because uh, Guillermo is a more front and center filmmaker than Norrington is, right? You know, Norrington, um, like I don't even know what Stephen Norrington is working on at the moment, for instance. You know, I know if I were to think of his credits off the top of my head, I come up with Blade and leave extraordinary gentlemen and then i don't remember anything else right you know, with del toro you know we're talking chronos we're talking you know pacific rim we're talking uh uh oh what's Shape the one of water yeah ship of water you know winning oscars for that what you know what's the best picture uh, not best picture the uh uh victorian one crimson, uh, peak. Cr crimson peak you know and, and then you do mimic too 
Yes. Yes, I believe he did. You know, and then he's got the TV extensions he's doing, and then he's working with Hideo Kojima on a bunch of things. So, you know, Dotaro is definitely more like kind of front and center of pop culture. And maybe that's why, uh, you know, people talk about that film more. Um, but I also think it's just a time in, in which it came, right? I mean, Blade came out during a time in the 90s where comic book films really weren't in the stride like they are now you know um and it took a blade and a blade two and other things to kind of get to the point where you can you know you get the iron mans and everything kind of gets going you know the way it gets going um but i just yeah i just think uh you know norrington is certainly a uh well that film at least is certainly a film that i i revisit often just from the transitions he uses from the editing style of it uh, i think stephen dorff's performance is really good in that in that movie um uh charismatic in a, in a really cool way uh so yeah i just think it's got a lot of things going for it so it's not the only influence uh on what i'm doing for the comic i mean obviously there's the canonical stuff that's happening right now um clive barker is another influence you know in the book uh you know the idea of blade versus byzantine style horror just always felt really cool to me and in the first issue uh, you can see a love letter to James Cameron uh, within, like, I think the first five pages, probably. 80s era James Cameron. My James Cameron. <laughs> Interesting facts, as you were talking about, I looked up Norrington. Uh, his Most of his credits are for VFX, yeah. including creature effects on both Aliens and Alien 3, and animatronics for one of my favorite 80s movies that I'm the only one who remembers young Sherlock Holmes. Ramatab, Ramatab. Yes! No, oh. young Sherlock Holmes is a classic. I love it. I, I say to so many people, they're like, what now? Like, no, oh. it's super good. Yes. It's super good. Um, and, and one of the first movies to use digital effects in the robust way that they did, you know, staying last window sequence. Oh yeah. And, and all of that. Um, I mean, so really, if you, so anyone listening to this, if you haven't seen young Sherlock Holmes, I strongly suggest uh, watching young Sherlock Holmes. It's really, really cool. If you're a fan of Harry Potter, I would watch it. Not that it has magic in the same way, but it captures that kind of, British in London adventure with dark forces sort of vibe. Um, it's really cool. And the and the I forget the name of the kid uh that plays Sherlock Holmes himself. I want to say it was Basil something, but I could be wrong. Um or Nigel something. Anyway, he's really good. It's all just really it's really really strong. And it recently got a nice new Blu-ray release if you're a physical media person. Oh, great. Yeah. I'm sure that looks I mean, I I might pick that up because I don't think well, I've definitely never seen it in, um, I don't think it was shot 235. It's probably 1185, but I've definitely never seen it widescreen. Um, you know, I only seen it, you know, one of those pen and scan VHS things that you just kind of wear the tape out, you know? Oh, yeah. Great soundtrack, too. Oh, totally. Oh. Now, I'm like the Quentin Tarantino of 80s genre. So, like, I've probably seen it twice and had it on a VHS tape recorded at like slp speed so i could stack them up you know <laughs> yeah. quentin will get me in the 70s 70s he'll get me in the 80s no 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 i can take him i can take him downtown to chinatown in the 80s like 
You know, like I, you know, I, yeah, he can't, he can't, he can't buff me. <laughs> I've seen it, Quentin. Yeah, but have you seen? Yes, I've seen it, dude. <laughs> okay, okay, that's cool. I'm gonna talk to you about a movie. Okay, how about like Maniac Cop? All right, have you seen Maniac Cop? Yes, Quentin, I've seen Maniac Cop, bro. Yeah, Robert right. Zadar, keep trying, <laughs> keep trying, Quentin. We'll be here all night, my brother. <laughs> uh, not that it's obscure, but for the first time in ages, I watched Fright Night uh, last weekend. Oh, okay, brother, let me tell you something about some Fright Night. All right, Matt, here's the thing. I am one of the world's biggest Fright Night fans. I kind of love vampires, which is part of the reason why I did Blade and part of the reason why I wrote Angel. I kind of really love vampires, right? Because they're sexy. Werewolves aren't super sexy. I mean, they can be, but then they turn into a werewolf and it gets all weird. But vampires just stay sexy the whole time. And Fright Night, a couple things about Fright Night. Uh, uh, You know, one, I think Chris Sarandon as, as Dandridge is amazing um to amanda burse who is now a director um uh but you know married with children we all know her uh from that she's amazing and brad fidel's score that come to me like refrain that plays whenever jerry dandridge is around uh is is amazing and then you look at fright night 2 which in some ways isn't quite as good as the first fright night however However, it has an astounding performance by Julie Carmen as Regine, as the villain. It's like one of the sexiest genre performances you'll ever see. And there was a scene where she's dancing with William Ragsdale. Uh, and they revisit the, the Brad Fidel come to me, you know, kind of refrain. And it's so good. Um, so also, so so now you're listening to this. You got three movies you have to watch. You got to watch. You gotta watch Young Sherlock Holmes. Then you gotta watch Fright Night, and then you gotta watch Fright Night Part Two. I, and I think it was who was it? Tom Holland. Tom Holland. Thank you. Um, yes. Yeah, that's one of the. I think Tom still has the rights to it. That's one of those things where it's like, why is that not a show? Why can I not watch Fright Night like binge it? Because you know that's that's all I want. But don't change the song though. You know, keep come to me. Um, so good. So good. If I, I think I was talking to like Brad Fidel on like social media at some point, and I was like, "Fright Night, bro." And for those listening, if you don't not familiar with the name Brad Fidel, Brad Fidel uh, is probably most notably um, the guy who did the score to Terminator One and Terminator Two, and that's probably what he is most known for. But Brad Fidel uh, also did, you know, music for other pictures, and Fright Night is one of them. It's just amazing stuff. So the house ads for the book for Blade, yes. uh, they've got a big old parental advisory on them, and they yeah. talk about how bloody and violent the book the book's going to be. Did Marvel come to you and say, you know, listen, you can cut loose, or did they? Did you kind of come to them and say, hey, listen, I want to try this thing? Well, you know, when you're good at something, you don't do it for free. <laughs> um. So I mean, you know, they. They like just told me like, hey, we want this to be uh, a a fun, kinetic, kind of action heavy book. Don't make it a talking head book. Uh, and I was like, okay, well, I think Blade should be violent. And they were like, fine. So that's really weird. I mean, that's just my opinion. You know, like ah, like I I couldn't direct a PG thirteen Blade movie. Like I'm not saying that the one they're doing isn't going to be great. I'm sure it's going to be great. I just don't have the brain for that. 
Like, if I direct a Blade movie, it's going to be rated R because I just can only see, you know, Tracy Lords dancing in a blood shower, right? Like, that's what comes to my mind, you know? Um, it might have came to my mind before the movie, but we're not going to talk about that. So, uh, yeah, like, yeah, so they were cool. They were, and, and, and look, you know, we there's a there's all types of violence, right? So, like, if you look at, like, my DC uh, Vertigo book, American Carnage, that's violence with a lot of emotional consequence, you know? But then there's, like, hyperbolic violence, which is sort of part of the style and the panache of a book. And so that's, I think, what we have here, right? And, and anytime you're thinking about horror, you will have to delineate horror versus terror. Right. And so horror is like just like the shock of the gore. Right. Like the thing has a lot of horror in it, but it also has some terror, you know, and I think a better example of a balanced experience is uh, Ridley Scott's Alien. Which has atmospheric terror, the chills, the things that get, get, uh, get under your skin, but also has moments of sheer raw horror where you're just icked out by the chest burster, you know. You're just icked out by Ash's head with its milky globules, you know, telling you that, you know, it's a perfect organism. I admire its purity. You know, like all of that stuff happening, right? So, like, that's the kind of stuff that, that's there. So, you know, um, Marvel was, was really amenable to it because none of it's exploitive, but it just has to be kind of cool. I mean, part of a Blade experience needs to speak to that kid that wears the sweetest death metal t-shirt and then you go to his bedroom and he's got like the metamorphosis, you know, uh, 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 SFX makeup hardcover, you know, and he's just that dude with the Michael Myers mask hanging on his wall who's going to convince you, convince you that Halloween 2 is just as good as the first Halloween, right? Like, you got to also reach that kid. And I was that kid. Although Halloween 2 isn't quite as good as the first Halloween, but I do like it. Thoughts on Halloween 3? Halloween 3, I warmed up to. I mean, as a kid, I was just like, this didn't have Michael Myers in it. This sucks. You know, like, I was that dude, right? I'm not even going to lie. I was like, yeah, Halloween match, man. This is crap, man. Where's Michael Myers? But now I come back to it, and I, I dig it, like, for what it's trying to do, you know? I think it's really interesting. And look, anything with Daniel Hurley in it all right, all automatically gets a star for me you know um and that's also a beautiful soundtrack too um that's a you know alan howarth uh carpenter um soundtrack there uh from that movie i would probably say listen to uh chariot of pumpkins i think is probably the highlight of that soundtrack uh because i'm a big film soundtrack guy um but uh yeah yeah so you know uh, halloween three okay in my book so as vaguely as you'd care to describe it, is there something in the book where you're like, I can't believe I got away with that in, in a Marvel comic, even with the big old Tipper Gore sticker on it? <laughs> 90s rubbers. Um, <laughs> I mean, no, honestly, because I, I was just, I was just buck wilding the entire time, right? So, uh, um, kind of once, they they approved the first script. I was like, okay, we're you know we're we're doing it, we're doing it. Um, and it, yeah, I, you know, it, it, I I don't, don't want to give give away the farm, but there are a couple character appearances I thought would be more difficult to get than they were. I'll say that. 
So I was able to use some people that I've wanted to write for a long time that I thought would have to be a little bit more of a finagle to get, but they were just like, cool, put them in, you know? Um, and, and that's really cool. So, so yeah, but they've really been super supportive, you know, like Tom Brevoort and CB Sapolsky and Will Moss and Michelle, uh, or she's like, they have super great people to work with. Um, so yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I am always shocked that someone pays me to do this. So that's just kind of a general thing, but outside of that, no, we're just kind of, we're cooking with gas, I think. And again, we're not we're not asking for for story spoilers, but yeah, okay. we we have to ask: mm. Will there be any motherfuckers trying to ice skate uphill? You know, some people are always trying to do that. Um, and uh, I might have to reference that aspect of of human nature and inhuman nature at some point. Uh, so there's a no prize for the person that uh, sees it and finds me on Twitter, you win a no prize. Oh, man. No one told you how foolish I was, did they? Everyone thinks I'm so serious. Then I go to my Twitter feed like, Brian's so serious. You're always talking about writing and storytelling and philosophy. I'm an idiot. I'm a useful (laughs) idiot. (laughs) I am pop culture's useful idiot. You're you're fitting in just fine around these parts. Absolutely. <laughs> well, it's about sending a message. <laughs> so, uh, Matt, Matt, now that you've read that line and made me very, very happy, uh, <laughs> it's a question to you, my friend. What is what is your what is your favorite Blade story? So, as you know, and I think our regular listeners. No, I'm a big fan of the classic Wolfman colon Tomb of Dracula, which is, of course, where Blade made his first appearance. Towards the end of that run, the there's a series ran 70 issues in the late 40s into the 50s is the story where Blade first teams up with vampire P.I. Hannibal King, who... The the he he predates Angel. He predates Nick Knight. This guy was the original vampire PI, and it's the two of them hunting down Deacon Frost, the dude who killed Blade's mother. And I mean, there's a lot of like wild magical stuff, like doppel vampire doppelgangers and all this. But there's a lot of pathos as Blade and King are working together. And as they're hunting the guy who killed Blade's mother, it, it's probably my favorite Blade story. Uh, my my own answer, uh, again, surprising no one based on brand, is uh, Captain Britain and MI thirteen, where they play up the fact that Blade was born in England to get him onto this team of of you know supernatural. Uh, adjacent superheroes, and he ends up developing a romance with uh, Spitfire, Jacqueline Fallsworth, that ends up getting complicated by the fact that she is a vampire. Those are good ones. What about you, Brian? Oh, um, well, I do kind of dig that that Wolfman stuff a lot. I just, you know, I just love, like, the kitsch of it, you know, and just, just how it it's just gleefully embracing its concept. See, one of the things about modern storytelling 
is sometimes I feel like we can be a little ashamed of the fun we have. <laughs> we had to elevate it. We had elevated beyond when you do this and that. We had to put a little layer in it or something. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes he just like rides a motorcycle and has vampire stakes and a bandolier and kills vampires and says cool things and then just keeps rolling. Like that's okay. You know? Um, so I revisited a lot of that stuff and really, really fell in love with it. In general, I have a theory that I think we are coming out of the age of deconstruction just psychologically as a society. I think, I think deconstruction peaks when society is comfortable and the more comfortable we are, the more we want to poke at our own security because it feels very safe to do so. Right. So if you look at like the nineties, the nineties was a really strong deconstructionist time, but we were also incredibly comfortable. Uh, and so we could make a movie where the main character's biggest problem was that he has to shop at Ikea Right. And we're going to make a movie about that. I got to beat myself up in a basement because my furniture looks the same. Right. And that felt like a legitimate thing to embrace. I, I think now, because the world is hard now, and we have a lot of conflicts now um, that seemingly may not have no elegant resolution. You know, and the lack of social mobility and the role of higher education and its utility coming off of a pandemic, you know, the economic issues that we have right now, the cultural issues we have right now. I feel like we are coming out of this need for deconstruction. And instead, we need a window into a better kind of almost a more organized world, right? Almost a more Manichaean world. Uh, where there's clear good and clear evil. You know, even like, even if the good is like edgy, basically good, right? Um, and so like the, the going back to the Wolfman stuff, you know, he, I feel like that's kind of where those things live in a lot of ways. And so that energy is really compelling to me right now as an artist uh, because I, I think, you know, just kind of like coming out of the Vietnam War, Star Wars was what we needed. I think now we're in a place where you know, we're walking away from deconstruction and we we need more constructionist fables. I think that's why everyone seems to be incredibly excited about Mission Impossible. I think people just want to go see Ethan Hunt save the day. The same way people wanted to go see Maverick fly the plane. You know, I think that's where we are as a culture now. You know, like, like it, it's time for Rocky to win. <laughs> <laughs> like you know and that's what we want now out of things so that's why i'm kind of going back to the older stuff and i'm you know some of the 80s stuff uh to kind of capture that spirit that would that would explain my current fast and the furious phase <laughs> dude i i mean i just really think it's legit i think you know um when times are challenging you know i think we turn towards these kind of manichaean experiences um a manichaean for people listening just meaning like you know a sort of philosophical worldview where there is good and there is evil um there's bad and there is good uh and i think that's what we're looking for you know is uh something that doesn't just reflect the the struggles that we're going through but also gives us a window into um uh a clarity that the world doesn't really seem to have 
And again, things went in cycles, right? Same parallels. So saw the same thing happening in, in pop culture in the seventies, you know, and that's what gave birth to the eighties, you know, gave birth to the kind of the Reagan era and the morning in America and all that stuff. Right. And so I think we're in a similar cycle now. I'm not speaking so much politically as I am just speaking like sociologically. So when you're writing Blade, what voice do you hear in your head? Do you hear Snipes? Do you hear Mahershal Ali, you know, in prep for Ooh. when that movie comes out? Or I'll posit this because, again, he was born in England, Idris Elba. Interesting. Um, I oftentimes I will sort of hear, you know, the characters in that way. I think with Blade, I just kind of hear Blade. You know, um, and I mean, I will, I always read aloud my scripts before I turn them in and I kind of act them out uh, just to kind of make sure that they make sense. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, definitely like Snipes, Snipes' growl is certain, certainly a part of it. The stoicism is certainly a part of the character, I think. Um, the wit, the selective surgical wit of the character is certainly there too. Uh, but yeah, you know, I think that's, that's what it is. Um uh you know the more of like this it's hard to it's hard to put your thumb on it like you just know when it sounds like blade uh, like batman like you know when batman sounds like batman <laughs> you know you're just writing it you're like i don't sound like batman yet go back to it like oh okay i changed that one now it sounds like batman although batman still sounds like kevin conroy to me so oh absolutely so rest in peace kevin conroy Absolutely. Yes. Recent development, Blade now has a daughter in the comics, Bloodline. Yes. Uh, how has being a father changed him? Interesting. Um, well, I mean, Blade is a different kind of father, right? Mm -hmm. So within the first issues, I'd say the first arc, I don't deal with Bloodline really at all. Uh, I'm just being very clear about that so fans don't think that I'm crazy. Um, and I'll tell you why. The reason why is I really thought it was imperative that Blade could hold his own book for a little while. Just if you're doing a number one to get it all started. Um, and then we're, we're talking about Bloodline and, and you know, bringing in those elements uh, that it, it still exist. I'm not ignoring the continuity of it. I'm just not dealing with it dramatically because the stakes are so high for what he's doing, no pun intended, that, um, you know, there's no time to kind of be wistful about parenting, really. Um, but I'd like to uh, bring her in a little later, you know, once, you know, as we start get this character, you know, kind of running well, you know, um, because it's just kind of hard to reestablish a character while you're also building a uh, mythology for a character that doesn't have that many stories really um and so every scene with bloodline matters because there aren't that many scenes in popular culture right so you have to really think about it uh, what you're going to do and i just thought for this you know for these for this first arc let's just kind of deal with Blade and his world a little bit and also expand his world beyond the characters we already know. Um, that was a big goal of mine. It was to not just have a cool new villain, but to also establish some allies that are kind of neat. That allies that serve as entry points into lesser known spaces within the Marvel U. Right? Because that's one of the things about Blade or, or Ghost Rider 
you know, these sorts of characters. Um, they also deal in a side of the MCU that we don't see a lot of. Uh, whether it's like the supernatural, like the black market of supernatural weapons or something, right? Like that's something you want to kind of deal with. Or um, just sort of different relationships between the occult and crime, you know, that you want to kind of deal with. And, and so these characters can serve as entry points, sort of establishing the geography of these spaces that do exist. Uh, that just makes the world feel bigger and cooler. We're... We're long from the days of, of Midnight Suns when Marvel tried to sustain like an entire line of, mm -hmm. of supernatural comics. But who is a Marvel supernatural character that uh, you wish more people knew about? Oh, that's a really good question. That I wish more people knew about. That's interesting. Um I'm not sure I have a character in my mind that I'm like, well, people don't know about the character. You know, I, I think the ones that I gravitate to, um, you know, like, like Ghost Rider is pretty popular as a character. Uh, although I feel like there's a lot of stuff you can do with Ghost Rider. That would be like super cool. Um but but yeah yeah I not 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 really like an unknown sort of character you know it's more like I do think that because of the tech heavy elements of most of the MCU that the the role of the supernatural is often sort of reduced in terms of events you know in terms of arc plot focus in many of the books and I think there's a really great opportunity to robustly explore supernatural in Marvel. I think DC is a little more balanced between the Ooga Booga um, and, and the tech. Uh, but I think the, the MCU, especially since we're in like the Iron Man era, you know, where that might be the most popular, well, Spider-Man, but outside of Spider-Man, Iron Man might be the most popular Marvel character existing now, right? And so whenever a character becomes incredibly popular, their tonality kind of rains down, like trickle down, trickles down through the entire universe, right? Like Superman, when Superman's really popular, you're going to get a lot of people who fly, who go to space, who have measures of his powers and the rest of it. You're dealing with a lot of that stuff. When Batman becomes super popular, then suddenly like, you know, everything's like super ground level in a, in a, in a, or, or every villain's a psychopath or something, right? Um and so I think uh, uh, we're in the Iron Man era right now. Um, uh, that's why it's interesting to watch the MCU and the, and the film side sort of kind of shift towards metaphysics a little bit with, with Strange and um, uh, some other characters. But I just, yeah, I just think there's a really interesting um, uh, landscape there to explore. Final Blade-related question. Yeah. What is, what is on your Spotify Blood Rave playlist? Oh, well, I listen to a lot of synthwave. Um, so like Primo the Alien, Kid Moxie, um, Immortal Girlfriend, like these kind of like, you know, really cool synthwavey acts. That's most of what I listen to. I don't listen to a lot of techno. Uh mainly because I can't write to like I can't write to that. Uh, 
Um, so I don't listen to a lot of that stuff. So it's more like, you know, like Tech Noir is the name I give it. Um, so for those listening, Tech Noir is the name of the bar that Sarah Connor goes to in the first Terminator. Terminator shows up to get her. I'm in a bar called Tech Noir. You know, she's on the phone. She's where. Um, and so it's like that kind of minor key 80s digi pop is sort of where I live on on my Blade Blood Rave playlist. You know, uh, um, like like in the Marvel Universe, if Pat Benatar existed in the Marvel Universe, Pat Benatar would obviously be a vampire. You know, so that's kind of like where where I'm thinking with, with a little more synth. She did run with the shadows of the night, so that makes sense. I mean, she did. I'm just saying. <laughs> I've never seen Pat Benatar in daylight. Have you? No, can't say that I have. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Quick diversion elsewhere, because um, you mentioned before you were writing on Titans, which I was. wrapped its four seasons on Max. Indeed. Uh, wrote for all four seasons a little bit. I did indeed. Uh, do you have a favorite episode, favorite bit of writing you did there? Your episode Lazarus is one of my favorites, which surprises no one who listens to this podcast because, uh, yeah, Batman character centric episode is sort of a jam. <laughs> well, I mean, look, you know, um, it's it's hard to sort of isolate my own writing uh, and kind of elevate it in my own sense of esteem, but there were there were certainly things there that were really really lovely to do. Right. And so like the scene where Bruce is speaking to Jason in the alleyway, trying to explain to him why he doesn't want him to be Robin. Um, you know, that was, I was able to, to exercise some very old demons with that scene. You know, I mean, that that's coming from the kid that saw Batman on June 23rd, 1989 and still has a ticket stub and a photo album. Right. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, Bruce Wayne in, a, in an overcoat giving bad news in an alleyway, you know, like so. And but I got to credit Greg Walker, the showrunner, uh, really, because the showrunner is the person that decides who gets to write what. And he knew how important Batman was to me uh, and really gave me an opportunity to write, you know, those kinds of moments uh, on the show, uh, which I which I really appreciated because. Uh, it was a real joy to be able to do that stuff, you know? Um, so yeah, like, you know, probably moments like that. Um, but it takes a village to raise a script, right? So like every script, even though my name is on it, you know, it's, it, it, I'm getting thoughts from everybody. Uh, and it's never really just a journey of one, you know? Um, uh, so I can't, I can't even take whole credit for any of the work that's, that's given to me. Um, but yeah, you know, I, you know, just like, Moments like that were really, really cool. Given the opportunity in comics, say, is mm. there a particular character from Titans who you would feel like I'd like to go and give that character another shot? Ooh, good question. Um, probably Hawk and Dove. Uh, I, I think they were kind of interesting and I didn't get to work on them very much um, in, in terms of scripting, just the way the episodes were assigned. I, you know, you know, maybe I had like a scene or something that um, uh, Minka 
performed um, as Dove. I'm not sure I ever wrote dialogue for Hawk, come to think of it, even though I'm a big fan of Alan. I think Alan's such a lovely, lovely guy. Um, so those characters, I think I could maybe bring something to in an interesting way. Because um, it was really cool working with Minka. Minka's great. Uh, and it was super fun. But I didn't get to do a lot with 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 them. So uh, I think probably that's where I have the most to add to it. Gen- generally, how do you feel like writing for TV and movies informs your comics work and vice versa? Well, I mean, the first thing is it's the efficiency, right? So the average screenplay is 115 pages. Um, so you have 115 pages to tell a story. The average television script is 55 pages, 58 pages, right? For hour long. So you have 58 pages to tell a story. A little bit shorter if you're doing network with commercials, but I never worked on networks, so I can't really speak to that. Um, a comic book is 20 pages with, on average, five panels each. Probably with a splash page or two, right? So a couple one-panel pages. That is a very very small amount of space to tell a rewarding story that has any pace and any scope. So comics make it easier to do everything else, right? It's sort of like, it's like learning Kung Fu or something. And if someone ties one arm behind your back and then you spar like that for a week, when you get that second arm back, you know, you're in like Chinese connection, Bruce Lee mode at that point, right? Because you feel like you have superpowers because you've been figuring out how to block and strike with one arm, you know? And so comics is kind of like that on a writing practice level. Um, You know, the others, I think what they all share is visual mediums, right? So uh, writing comics definitely is me thinking in pictures, which is the same as me writing a screenplay or or a television show because of the kinds of things I work on. I tend to work on very visually uh, uh, forward projects. I, you know, no one really hires me to do Law & Order. You know, not that Law & Order doesn't look good. You know, Law & Order looks fine. Don't let the DP of Law & Order find me on Twitter. It looks lovely. I'm just <laughs> saying that, you know, Law & Order has a certain thing, a certain verisimilitude, and most of the things I work with have a bit of design. So, um there's the there's the writing stories and images aspect, but I think for me, hmm, the biggest difference is I get real time feedback in comics in a way you do not get in screenwriting and TV writing. Like I feel like the, even though millions of people watch Titans, right? I don't know a lot of them. Uh, I mean, I, some of them find me on Twitter, um, especially when they don't like something, then they really find me, but. With comics, I just feel like there's this, you just have this relationship to your readers that's different, you know, and they're they're reading your work like month to month and um, and you meet them, you go to conventions, you go to signings and 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 you meet them in a way that you don't in TV writing or screenwriting, you know, a screenplay, even on a screenplay where I've made a small fortune to write, you know, how many people read it? 35? Maybe, you know, and that's just a guesstimate. And, uh, and if it gets turned into a big movie, maybe that turns into a hundred people, maybe. 
Um, and they may all watch the movie, but they're not really reading the screenplay, right? The screenplay is a blueprint. In comics, they're like really reading your work. So it's a little different, um, which is why I like to do it. Uh, because I just think there's just something unique about the relationship between audiences and what they read versus audiences and what they watch. And I think that's part of the reason why comic book fans are so passionate and opinionated because there is a more intimate experience with the reading of it than when you're watching something and you can kind of, you know, you can cut it on and clean the room and whatever, you know, or, or, you know, play Zelda while the idol is on because you're not going to really watch all of it. But, you know, you're going to look up every now and then and get back to, you know, you know cleaning up Hyrule or whatever it is. Um, a comic book, you sit down and you read. Uh, so, yeah, that's where it feels. It feels just more personal, I guess. Um, one of my favorite stories of yours uh, was uh, Chariot, the series you did in, in uh, with, oh, yeah, yeah. with Priscilla over at AWA. Uh for listeners, it's about this guy who finds a car. It contains the digitized ghost of a spy from the 1980s. Uh, what, what was the origin of that project? You know, was it was AWA kind of looking for pitches from folks when it was just starting and you happened to have that in the hopper? Well, I mean, you know, Axel and I, Axel Alonso uh, uh, and I have been friends for a while. And we never really crossed paths when he was over at Marvel. Because, um, you know, I was kind of dipping in and out. And I was a big DC guy back then. You know, not that I'm not a DC guy now. It's just that I don't have enough time to do a bunch of things. And so I was doing like Outsiders or whatever it was um, and just didn't have a ton of time. So uh, we never really got to work there. But when he, you know, had his own thing, he reached out and said, hey, Brian, do you have a you have a, you have a book? And I, I had some thoughts, you know, about Chariot. Uh, I'm really interested in transhumanism, you know, like the role that, machines are going to play in not just like our physical selves but also consciousness um like someone someone really really dear to me uh who's always sending me uh the the coolest things uh she sent me this uh uh link to the story about how there's a machine that can interpret your dreams or like it can like read the signals and tell you like what you're thinking about or whatever it is and the implications of, of consciousness and how it interfaces with technology um, really fascinates me. and also terrifies me, brings ethical questions. So like, I was thinking about that aspect of chariot too. And then the other, the other 13 year old side of me is just like, I want to do something where a cool guy drives a car and the car does cool stuff. And then like somebody cool in the car and then they fight the other car. Uh, so I'm like, I'm gonna write this, and then I wanted to look like a synthwave thing because I like that. And what if Kit was hot? You know what I mean? Like, you know, like there's like part of me is like, and there's like this Christopher Nolan part of me that's like, well, you know, when I was thinking about Batman, I just wanted to try to ground it and tell a comic book story that was different than I think the other comic book stories that had gone before. Yeah, that side of me exists, but then there's the other side is like. Well, he like has like a jet engine on the Batmobile and it go real fast. And then like he walks out the fire and the music like duh, 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 duh. like you know, so like the, that's always the thing, you know. So part of it was interested in this. Uh part of it was just want some cool, stylish thing. And I've loved Priscilla's art for so long. 
um because she kind of reminds me of like patrick nagel or something you know like it's just so cool like you just want to put her art in like a skateboard and do like a 720 or something you know what i mean like it's i just just want like a tattoo of like priscilla's art in my back or something if i was cool i would get that i'm not cool though so i'm not gonna get a tattoo on my back um yeah and it's only came out of that and axel was really into it um and i was uh, really into the idea, um, uh, kind of doing it. Um, so, you know, I tried to get the Knight Rider rights many, many, many years ago, um, but Hasselhoff has them. Um, so you can't really get them. Not that I have anything against David Hasselhoff, you know, but that's why we haven't seen Knight Rider stuff because Hasselhoff has it. So, yeah, you know, just kind of thinking about, well, cool, I want to do a talking card thing, but I want it to be cool in this, in this different way. That was it. I, I do like that you've sort of described the duality of the book, you know, between like the the serious thoughts about transhumanism and the wanting to do cool shit. It's a very Barbie Oppenheimer duality, which I feel oh, is like is very timely right now. <laughs> oh, for sure. I mean, like, you know, but those are the people I really admired growing up, you know, like like Jim Cameron, right, is kind of a hero of mine in a lot of ways. And one of the things I love about Cameron is he's obviously a deep thinker. He thinks about metaphysics. He thinks about environmental consciousness. You know, he thinks about these things, but he's also like, what if we put a gun on a steady cam? <laughs> like, you know, like, at the end of the day, bro, you put a gun on a steady cam, right? Like, you're also that dude, you know? Like, you know, part of him was looking at Titanic and being like, we need somebody to hit the fan. Can you CGI somebody to hit the fan? You know, like, so like, that's one of the things I really admire is anyone who can be, be very erudite, you know, super thoughtful, layered in their thinking, you know, all of that stuff, but also just kind of keeps in mind, we got to have somebody hit the fan and it's got to go dong. Or this movie ain't working for me, you know. So I, I try to I try to keep those, you know, two things. Um, there's someone who's a like huge influence on on me and my life, and um, uh, has really uh, helped me rediscover a lot of parts of myself. And one of the things they tell me all the time is, "Don't forget to play." Right, and I can sometimes forget to play, um, but uh, I think I'm at my best when I remember to find the play inside of the other stuff that I, that I'm also interested in. Uh, was, was this a comic that where you were thinking like, this is something that I could, you know, option for adaptation at some point when you were conceiving it? What chariot? Yeah. Um. Well, I mean, not to be self-aggrandizing, but because I've done so much work in Hollywood, if I create an original book, there will at least be, a decent amount of interest in what it is and if it could make an adaptation. I don't think readers should be paying for film pitches. Like I don't ever want a comic book reader to pick up a Brian Hill book and think that their hard-earned money is subsidizing a pitch for a movie. And I've read books that felt that way. That felt like you just put enough of this book together to try to sell this to Hollywood land. Now I think because I'm also the guy that gets hired to adapt these movies, I know that that can oftentimes be fool's gold, right? Because, you know, for everything that's on the IMDb, there's probably 
another project that I can't talk about that's an adaptation of something you've heard of that just kind of got buried somewhere for X, Y, and Z reason, right? So I know how difficult it is to get these movies made, especially when these movies are going to cost more money. I'm talking about something that's going to be, you know, upwards of $100 million, you know, or $60 million to $100 million, whatever it is. That's a large amount of money. So, uh, you know, I know that that doesn't really happen. Um, so it's never something I'm thinking about consciously. Uh, except that I'm thinking, I don't want someone thinking that this is just a film pitch. You know, that that this is a concept with some books that we can just put it on a shelf and then immediately we're trying to, to schlep it over to Hollywood land. Uh, but, you know, once I saw the art come together and once I saw uh, that Priscilla was really making me look like I know what I'm doing, which is not an easy thing to do because, again, useful idiot. Um, I thought, like, well, somebody's probably going to want to mess with this because it just looks like a cool movie or something. But I, yeah, I don't, I don't really think it's, it's funny because I'm, I definitely am on that side of the business, but I, I don't really think about that. I, I think that short changes, not only the readers, it short changes the stores that have to stock this stuff and make, I mean, because these, you know, comic books, the comic book business is driven by mom and pop businesses. There isn't a gigantic chain of retailers that is getting these books in the hands of people. You normally when you're buying a comic book, you're buying it from a family store uh, that has been there for a little while. And these stores have to make decisions about how much of what they're going to put on the shelf. And shelf space is precious, right? So everything they decide to purchase to sell, they don't buy other things, you know? And uh, I think you got to respect the, the retailers and what you know decisions they have to make got to respect the readers and you got to respect the medium. You know, the thing about the reason why Hollywood was drawn to comics is because Hollywood needed the imagination and the vision of comic books. When comics start bending to what they think the will of Hollywood is, then you're taking the awesome possibility of the stories we can tell. And you're making it this very, very small Ouroboros, this circle of a thing that isn't serving anyone. Um, and I think the thing with Hollywood is force Hollywood to catch up with you. Don't ever try to play Hollywood's game because they don't know what the game is. And I work in the middle of it. They don't know, you know, um, what, what they'll never make on Monday. They'll make the following Monday because something came out. I've been, wor I've worked on like movies that would be gigantic budgets if they got made. I mean, I was just writing a screenplay, but I've worked on a movie that would have had like a $200 million budget probably if it would have gotten made. And because I was writing it during the summer movie season, every time a movie came out, I would get different notes on Monday. Because if a movie came out that was a big movie and it didn't make money, then the note on Monday was make it smaller. And then the next week, if a big movie came out, made a lot of money, no, no money was make it bigger, you know, and then, and then something else would come out and be like, oh, we need a furry sidekick, you know, it's it just like Hollywood has no idea, you know, Hollywood is, it, it, and, and I work there and I love the people there and I love the business. I love what I do, but Hollywood is oftentimes chasing the smell of its own fart and forgetting that they're the ones that ate the beans, right? So when you try to bend the books to Hollywood or even think in that mindset, all you're really going to do is limit your imagination. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to be defensive 
about it, right? You're going to not want to do things because like, I don't know if it was, I don't know if the, the producers are going to understand this. So we're going to temper that. No, 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 like, like tell a story, make it cool. And then they hire someone like me to read it and then figure out how to make it a movie. But don't, don't make it a movie on the page. Doesn't need to be. Uh, is that, is this a, is this a world, a project, a book that you see yourself coming back to at some point? I would like to. Yeah. Um, it's mainly about Priscilla's schedule and all of that. Right. Cause I don't want to do it without her. Um, Cause I feel like I, I do really feel like we created that book together. You know, I, I had like, you know, story stuff and writing the scripts, but it really didn't come alive until she started drawing it, you know? Um, so it would, it would really be about when she's available and obviously AWA and what they wanted to do and the rest of it. But I would very much like to do, um, another volume of that. Uh, I've got, I've definitely got enough story in my head for two more volumes. Well, uh, penultimate question. What are you mm. reading right now? Oh, that's a really good question. Well, you know, I don't, uh, in terms of fiction, um, let's see. So on uh, the comic side, um, you know, reading Doctor Strange, uh really liking tom's super supergirl stuff um getting getting you know getting caught up on that i get caught up a lot because i don't uh have the time to kind of catch it when it comes out so like i'm in a tom king phase now so a lot of human target uh getting caught up on that um, that was a great book i loved that book oh yes it's 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 awesome it's it's really awesome uh i'm, I'm really into i'm not even going to try to pronounce the writer's name pardon me uh the the cyberpunk comics that I think Dark Horse puts out, they're cool. They're really good. Um, so uh, definitely um, really enjoy I'm a big fan of cyberpunk as a genre. Um, so reading that. So that's kind of where I am on the comics uh, front. Um, having, you know, I'm looking forward to Tom's uh, Wonder Woman. I haven't read it yet. Um, I don't know it was sold out or something like that. So I might just wait a beat until there's a couple more of them and then kind of dig in with that. Then on the prose front, I'm reading Heat 2 uh, by uh, Michael Mann, Meg Gardner, um, which I think is a is a is just a brilliant kind of white hot bullet of a read. That's really cool. Um, and then on the nonfiction front, there's a recent hardcover uh, release called Technoir, the art and films of James Cameron it has a forward by Guillermo del Toro. And the brilliant thing about it is uh, it's got, you know, it's got the sketches that Cameron did. And we all know they had a nightmare about the Terminator. And then he, you know, woke up and drew it. And we all know that story. We all have DVD special features, but you, you've, you, you know, it has like new annotations um, and you get a real sense of his mind state. Uh, and so I think that book is, is really fantastic. Um and then I bought this Tashin book recently that is a collection of advertisements from the 80s, which I kind of love. It's just uh, newspaper ads, magazine ads from the 80s. And taken out of the context of the era, you see exactly how insane design was back then. And how cheerfully naive everything was. It was like to see the to see the legitimate excitement around audio cassette like it was never going to get better than that like, you know so yeah so that, that's pretty cool 
Awesome. Well, Brian, this has been a fantastic time. Final question as we release you back into the world. How can people follow you online and keep up with Blade and everything else that you got going on? Oh, right on. Well, you know, I I haven't plunged into the new social media stuff yet. So the best place to follow me is Twitter, uh, where my it's just my name. Uh, it's at Brian Edward Hill, uh, Brian with a Y. That is where I am most active. I'm also uh, active on Instagram. That's just at Brian E. Hill. But I come and go on Instagram. And most of my Instagram is me writing about films um, or like fragrances, or it's basically just like the Brian Hill men's magazine that I never got to be the editor in chief of that my Instagram is. Uh, but Twitter is where I'm talking most of my geek stuff. Uh, and I haven't done like threads or anything like that. But if you follow me on Twitter and I get my blue sky up and my threads up, and my ooga booga and the what's a calls it and the other thing, I'll put the links there. Um, but I just, I'm not interesting enough to exist everywhere like the lawnmower man like i, I you know I, I i mean we all have a healthy amount of ego when we work in this business but i don't think mine is so big where i'm like i must exist on all planes of social media no i no i'm not dark side you know I, I i can it's cool if i'm just on like a couple it's fine right on well brian thank you so much for coming on the show thank you so much for having me that's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A is part of Comics XF, where you can find this podcast along with our sister podcasts, Battle of the Atom, and Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast co-hosted by Matt Lazowitz and our bud Will Nevin. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at Patreon.com slash WMQComics where a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a free comic in the mail for my collection. A $2 donation gets you a Pete Wisdom Hot Claw sticker designed by Kevin Newburn. A $3 donation gets you access to our bonus podcast, Our Son Pete, a deep dive into the appearances of British mutant super spy Pete Wisdom. A $4 donation gets you access to Our Son Pete and the sticker. A $25 donation lets you plug your crowdfunded or creator-owned comic in a 60-second spot. And a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis, Robert Secundus, Liz Large, and Will Nevin from ComicsXF, Carla Pacheco, Mike Sagawa, and Azabah Fangirl, a.k.a. The Loyalist Content Consumer. You can follow WMQ&A on Twitter at WMQComics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013, and ComicsXF at ComicsXF, assuming Twitter still works. And until next week, remember, somewhere out there, there's a Batman comic where all the characters simply cannot stop saying the word boner. W-N-Q-A. W-N-Q-A.